You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Wirt and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Welcome back, manufactured listeners. It's been quite the week. Like so many others, we too were angry, though sadly not surprised, about the Boohoo scandal. So why is this happening? Our view is that it's systemic, and we can't allow Boohoo to treat the issue like it's a matter of weeding out the bad apples within the supply chain. And yet, too often, the language we use to talk about these issues facilitates exactly this kind of narrative. When we allow Boohoo to say things like "We've terminated the contracts with the non-compliant firms," or "We're going to do an independent review into our supply chain," the subtext is always that the responsibility for these human rights abuses is located solely with unwieldy suppliers out to make a profit at any cost, and that the job of the brand is just to weed them out. When we say the problem is、uh, systematic, we mean that. At least in part, these issues are driven by purchasing practices that systematically distribute risk and reward between brands and suppliers unequally. Now, a supplier shouldn't be off the hook for abusing its workers, but we must also recognize the asymmetrical power relation between these players. And the ways in which these suppliers are also victims of broader and exploitative system created by brands. In our episode today, we have the immense good fortune of talking to Michaela Scholes. Michaela is an American and trained in textile design, and she's an expert in sustainable denim. Shortly after graduating from textile design, she packed her bags and headed to Bangladesh, where she worked for a garment factory. She ended up staying in Bangladesh for seven years, working for garment factories, brands, and agencies sourcing in Bangladesh on behalf of brands. Ultimately, her disillusionment with business as usual led her to Outland Denim in Cambodia. Outland Denim is an ethical denim manufacturer and a brand all in one, and she now works as a freelance consultant. You may be wondering why would a garment factory in Bangladesh employ a designer? Isn't that the job of brands? Yes, historically it was, but this is changing. So, is this a way for factories to move up the value chain and reclaim some of their power at the negotiation table, or are factories just being settled with more and more cost without increased compensation? We also get a bit technical. What makes a pair of jeans sustainable? Where does the drive for more sustainable production come from? Who has responsibility for educating the consumer? What's the role of transparency within this picture, and how can we transform the way we talk about transparency within sustainable fashion spaces to make it a more effective tool of consumer education? We don't talk directly about the Boohoo scandal in this episode, but so many of the themes that come up in our conversations speak to the asymmetrical power relations that drive the unsustainable practices we hear about in the news. If you're on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at Manufactured underscore Podcast, or sign up on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to receive our news and updates. And finally, please don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Welcome, Michaela. So, tell us, how does a Young American with a degree in textile design end up working for a garment factory in Bangladesh. 
Yeah, so um, I studied fashion design and textile design in the U.S., and I was just looking for more opportunities. Uh, I loved university. I went to an art university, and I loved the creativity and exploration we did within um, how to become a better designer, but I still felt there was a really big disconnect between the practicality of the garment industry and um, what actually making clothes looks like. So um, through the college I was studying at, there was an opportunity to go uh, to Bangladesh and to work in a garment factory. And the program was kind of set up that you would learn about garment production and how the clothes are actually made, and then in turn help them understand design and the Western aesthetic and um, how that works. So they were mainly working for your general mass market brands that you would see in any shopping mall across America. But of course, many of the people that worked in the factory and definitely the people who were sewing the clothes hadn't left Bangladesh. So they Mm. needed to understand more of um, Western aesthetic. Mm. So this was a program by your, like run by your university. Yeah. So um, with directly linked with the factory in Bangladesh. Which is so cool. But was it a popular program? Um, No, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) I don't think there's uh, many young uh, 20-somethings that are ready to go to Bangladesh. And honestly, I was a bit naive. But um, that Mm. was, uh, I was just ready for a bit of adventure. Uh, Turned into quite an adventure, but um, also a really Yeah, you end up staying like seven years, right? Yeah, so I planned to go for just a a really short stint, but then I never really left. Um, So there's different things that led to that. I never experienced poverty or um, Mm. just such a significant need in that level. Um, I'd also never um, been to Asia. And Mm. I'd also, um, I just felt that my knowledge of the production um, area in, in garments was so little that there was so much to learn there. Mm. Why do you think you had that curiosity specifically? Because like you said, this program existed, it was part of your university, but not many textile design students ended up doing it. So what do you think it was that sort of, I mean, I'm not from a design background. So for Mm -hmm. me, it's kind of strange. Like I would think, oh, if someone studies textile design, everyone who studies textile design is probably super interested in the details of how textiles (laughs) are made. So I'm kind of like surprised to hear. I think especially in America, um, with the design world, I mean, a lot of it is centralized around New York or LA. So there's also kind of this allure of this lifestyle that you're going to live in a big, busy city and you're going to have this glamorous fashion life. And I just didn't really find that the reality. Um, Mm -hmm. I was doing, of course, in all jobs, you need to start in the entry level and work your way up. But I had a huge amount of student debt and was um, doing internships that were unpaid. And um, I was just doing things like ironing clothes and organizing color swatches. And I just thought that there there has to be more than this. So what can mm-hmm. I do to position myself to get more experience to, to move up quickly because I couldn't iron clothes for that much longer? <laughs> <laughs> or organizing color swatches. Yes. <laughs> um, Which... Can and, be kind of fun, but maybe not every day, all day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so then I think also um, just seeing 
um, of course, in a factory, you're working with many different brands, not a single brand, but then seeing the information come in from the designers on the other side of the world. And then you could really tell that the designers didn't really understand how production worked. Um, Mm. And often the factory didn't know how to communicate um, what they needed from the designers. So then there was this like even sampling processes would take really long because by the time the factory could explain what they needed from the designer, the designer had sent five or so more tech packs, but it still wasn't what the factory needed. And then this disconnect was so big, I thought there had to be a better way to spend more time with the factories to learn how they work, to learn how they interpret the materials they're given, um, to just make the process better for both sides. Yeah. So before we get into the details of your time working uh, for a garment factory in Bangladesh, can you just give us an overview of, so you arrived in Bangladesh and give us, give our listeners an overview of kind of your journey. Yeah. So I was um, specifically working with the factory. Um, there's over 4,000 garment factories in Bangladesh. So there's a, a lot to choose from. Um, it was a bigger one. There was about 10,000 employees. Um, but I was also quite shocked by just the the industry standards and what was accepted as normal and how those standards were so different than the standards we would accept in the West. And you mean quality standards or so- social standards or uh, social both? social and labor standards. Mm. Um, so mainly the treatment of the workers um, from the seamstress level, but all the way up through management and middle management. Um, and just things I was experiencing really made me question, um, does it have to be like this or can it be better? Um, Mm. and then at the same time I was experiencing, um, the waste of the garment industry, which is, um, being talked about now, which I think is we're making great progress there, but just seeing warehouses and warehouses of mountains of clothes that will never get sold because, there's a tiny problem or because someone over ordered or because there's um, yeah, the color was slightly off by a shade of 0.5%. And it was just, it was overwhelming. It was like, how can this industry, which everyone buys clothes, but how can it be in this state? And no one really wants to do anything about it. It's Mm. just accepted as the way it is. So, um, That really led me to investigate um, what else was being done in the industry, what sustainability, um, this was about 10 years ago, so sustainability was much less talked about than as it is now. Um, So what was being done to, yeah, to make the industry better or to do it differently than what was accepted as the norm? Um, And that's when I was introduced to a garment factory that was building a lead platinum factory. Um, So this is a building standard that I believe is set by the U.S. And Mm -hmm. um, it just sets requirements for how the factory um, would use energy and recycle water and deal with waste and deal with carbon emissions. And um, so it was really there wasn't a factory like this in Asia at all at this point. Um, So it was really the first one. And they were really purveying the way in sustainability, but they also weren't shouting about it. They weren't like, hey, Mm. look at us. We're amazing. Look at what we're doing. They were just doing it because they wanted to be better. So 
um, that really attracted me. And then um, that was also a denim factory. And I um, found denim very interesting because the process is just, um, you don't just sew the garment and it's done. That's only half of the half of the work with denim. So that really led my um, interest in denim. And then, um, yeah, I ended up staying there and working there for about four years. Um, mm. Can you tell us a little bit about what your role was for this for this denim factory, and why did this why did this denim factory want a designer? Because I think that's that's pretty unusual, right? Yeah, or at it, least it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely was. Um, but I think that goes back to a little bit more about what we were talking about um, at the very beginning of the podcast, where there was just this huge disconnect between Western standards of aesthetic and quality and then also how the factories were interpreting that so they really felt by adding this link of someone that could communicate directly with the brands communicate directly with the design teams at the different brands um, would help that transition of getting garments right quicker in the development process but then also um, just making sure things are interpreted uh, correctly if you look at a tech pack um, from a design perspective, maybe you know that a dash line means it should be just a stitch line, not an actual seam. But mm. in the factory, it wasn't always interpreted that way. So you just end up making a lot more rounds of sampling. But then mm. also at that time, um, the bar was being raised for factories and what was expected of them. So factories were also expected to come to the brands with newness. You couldn't really just cut and sew anymore because they would mm. go to a different factory. and. In a country like Bangladesh, um, that development was a lot slower, where in countries like China and Turkey and Vietnam, um, they really got, they were more quick to catch on that they really needed to be able to offer the brand something as well, rather than just being able to do their cutting and sewing. So we would work internally, um, sourcing fabrics and trims and developing our own collections from the factory side that could be presented to the brands. And then they could come on their buying trips and directly pick and choose garments to put into their standard ranges. Jesse, I'm curious what you think about this. Like if you, as when you were a merchandiser, if you had been working with a factory that had employed an American designer, like how would that have changed your job? Oh, I think uh, uh, our brand, the brands we represented would be very happy to have an American designer or a European designer uh, located in the factory. As those brands are mm. um, uh, France, uh, French brands, Europe brands. Mm. So they would be very happy to have a European designer in the factory and make the work much easier. As uh, Michaela just mentioned, with a designer in the factory, first it's like a translator, you know, translate the brand language into factory language. Mm. So factory will understand better, you know, do less samples. And then brands would be very happy to outsource part of the designing jobs directly saying, hey, do you have any ideas of next connection? Do you have any nice uh, samples we can select? <laughs> and I want to hone in on like on a, on a detail, which was like you were you said there was more and more expected of factories and that you were actually working on developing products or a range of products that you then that the factory could then offer to the brand. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this works? Because I think for some of our listeners, this might sound really counterintuitive. Usually what we hear is the brand's role is to design the product and then they find the factory to make it. 
So, and how do you not end up then say with, a, you know, if a factory designs a pair of jeans that it doesn't end up, the same pair of jeans doesn't end up in, in like the shops of five different brands, yeah. right? Well, there is definitely still a bit of trust in that um, mm. area between the brands and the suppliers. Um, but it goes both ways. Of course, as a factory, you trust that if you develop a sample for a brand, they will then place the bulk order with you. Um, they mm. won't take your sample and go to a different factory and give them the bulk order. So in the same way, if you presented a design to a brand and they said, oh, yes, we want to buy this and we're going to put it in this collection and we're going to order 30,000 pieces, then you wouldn't show that same garment to another customer. Um, so the design process for these kind of collections is we would work as a team um, internally and we would... Uh, can work a few different ways because a lot of brands kind of have like a base fabric library that they want to work from. So mm. we would either, um, and then with denim, a lot of the actual trend um, and things that change between the seasons are the washing and the way the, the denim looks um, after it's been washed uh, commercially. So mm. um maybe we would apply the same wash on a different fabric base for different customers. Um, mm -hmm. We would also do styling changes as well as um, trim updates. Of course, a lot of, um, of course, all brands have their own type of trims they like to use with their logo, um, but you can change the colors, you can change the way they're embossed, or you can change um, maybe a label screen printed and you want to make it woven so it was always just enhancing um, a lot of what they already had. But mm. the, the beneficial part of being a factory is you have a really close relationship with the raw material suppliers because you're not just buying for one brand, you're buying for many brands. So um, it was a really good collaborative space because they would show the new things they've worked on, the new things they developed, the different methods and new materials they have. And then we would be able to take that and then show it directly to the brands. Um, so not all brands have that exposure to these kind of suppliers or the market in general. So it was really, um, I really enjoyed this time. It was just such a collaborative feel to the industry, which I think often um, it's there, not right. always there, but um, yeah. uh, if it is there, it's not really celebrated or supported. Mm. Um, but it really felt like a space where everyone was working together to get business for one another and, um, yeah, to just completely better the industry as much as we could as individuals. So what do you think made the relationship between, like you're talking now about the relationship between cut and sew facility, raw material supplier, but then also between cut and sew facility and brand, right? What do you think the key ingredients were for, for making that such a positive relationship? Um, of course, it was quite varied. I think um, many brands operate different ways. And I wouldn't say it was really regional, but you could definitely tell um, it, it all kind of came from the top and how a brand mm. was ran and how a brand was managed. And you could really feel the different kind of company cultures. And in a brand where maybe it was one big boss that was running the show and everyone was kind of scared of him and he was super intimidating. Um, mm. the, the brands would act that way with suppliers as well. 
Um, mm. But maybe if it was a company-owned brand where the management was spread and people um, really felt empowered in their roles as buyers, as designers, as um, then they would approach their work with the company, with the factory in the same manner. So I think, um, I mean, that just says a lot about management styles in general. Um, mm. But yeah, there were definitely some customers that were easier to work with than other customers. But you also kind of figure out the way brands like to work. So mostly mm. the factory would adapt to just kind of the brand style. And that's how we worked with that customer. It's quite a pity, <laughs> I feel. Yeah, it's quite a pity that... Uh... It just reminded me my own experiences that if a company is um, very much into cost effectiveness, you know, mm. then it uh, left very little spaces for factory to say something. Even they want to say mm. something, if they have something to say, but they don't really want to because they don't want the brand that took the space of uh, cost saving mm. and uh, pressure them on the prices. So they will usually keep this with themselves or sometimes they propose some very good uh, advices or good uh, technical tips but uh, eventually the brand will just ask them so how much can we save if mm. we don't save a lot we will not take it yeah. so it's yeah it's really deeply related to the company culture i would mm -hmm. say yeah and the leadership style which is like jesse i asked you almost the same question back in episode Two, I think it was when you talked about your experience as a merchandiser yeah. and you also described a pretty positive relationship between buying office and factory. Yeah. And I asked you like, why do you think that was? And you had the same answer as Michaela. You were, you were like, well, I think it was the leadership of the representative office. Yeah. Because at the time, because he, uh, the representative office manager, he really wants a flat organization. He doesn't like so many levels of authority. So he gives lots of spaces and he basically made a decentralized uh, office setting, let's say. So which provides lots of spaces for the suppliers. And also provide uh, spaces for um, trust partnership or trust the relationship between brands and the suppliers. So mm. um, I'm not surprised. I'm very glad to hear this again in Makila's story. <laughs> so I want to ask sort of a controversial question because I come at this from the perspective of a garment factory manager, which is a little bit different. And when I hear this, on the one hand, I'm like, okay, so you're moving up the value chain, you're offering more services, that's a way to make yourself as a factory less replaceable and to improve your sort of clout at the negotiating table. On the other hand, you're investing a lot of overhead in a design team, which pre and costs and expenses, which previously were borne by the brands. Mm -hmm. So are you getting paid more for <laughs> these products? Or I don't know, what's your what's your take on that, Michaela? Yeah, I think um, it's still something the garment industry struggles with today that it's there is so much pressure put on manufacturers to bear these kind of costs. So no, mm -hmm. because our because the factory had a design team and had invested in these things, they weren't paid more for the garments. It, you know, mm -hmm. you'd still look at the cost breakdowns and there wasn't, oh, the extra 10 cents for the design team. No, it was mm -hmm. still just the raw materials, the labor. Um but in the same aspect, I think a lot of those things have happened with um, the drive for sustainability. Often there's just this expectations on factories that they need to better, um, they need to put in better physical safety standards, they need to have more audits, they need to um, 
You know, mm-hmm. there's all these steps the brands require them to check off, but not are they're not always willing to pay for it. Um, and there, this is being talked about more. And there are a lot of brands that are making initiatives to help factories do this better. Um, but there is still quite a disparity, I think, on the responsibility that's actually placed on brands and the responsibility mm. that's placed on the suppliers themselves because there would always still be the risk well oh well if you don't do this we'll take it to a factory that does so mm. it was like well you have to do it or you're going to lose business which i don't think is a very fair spot to put a supplier in when you do expect so much collaboration and the industry is actually so collaborative because if the garment factory is not going to make the clothes the brand's not going to have any clothes to sell so um even though there has been progress, I still think there can be more. And I have spent so much time with garment factories directly and indirectly through working for brands or buying houses. But um, I just always have a little special place in my heart for them because they're generally doing whatever they can do to make the relationship better and to tick all the boxes. But they're often not given any financial support for it. Or even credit, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I think, like, I want to I wanna ask you a little bit about, because especially in the denim industry, you know, there's a lot that goes into making a pair of jeans more or less sustainable. And I'm curious to hear, you know, how the garment factory that you worked for addressed this question of sustainability and also actually took a leadership role in figuring out what a sustainable pair of jeans looked like. Mm-hmm. And then whether there's any scope for factories maybe like reclaiming some control over the narrative that consumers receive because on the one hand you have a factory that's doing some really innovative stuff in terms of developing a more sustainable pair of jeans but on the other hand you have the brands who are kind of taking credit for that story and also controlling the way that it's communicated yeah so i think um i mean the biggest I think hurdle to overcome in this at the moment is how is sustainability defined? Because Mm. of course there's varying degrees of sustainability. And if you're doing something slightly better than the norm, should that really be considered sustainable or is that just (laughs) a little bit better than everyone else is doing it? So I think especially as how you were saying with the connections with consumers, um, it's complicated. So if you're not really in the industry and really trying to learn about the processes that are harmful to the environment or to the workers performing them, it's not really clear what is sustainable and what is not sustainable. So maybe you can give an example. What makes a pair of jeans more or less sustainable? Well, um, Basically, in the way denim is processed, after it is stitched, it needs to be washed. Um, Denim naturally comes with a dark, deep blue shade, but there aren't any of the vintage look or washing down or whiskering processes where certain areas of the gene are lighter rather than darker. Um, So they go from being a very flat garment to something that has a lot of dimension through this washing process. And Mm. the washing process can look very different. So um, I think the biggest thing that's been developed in sustainability is machinery. Um, There are 
machines that, um, I mean, it's like any type of machine, the machines that were made 20 years ago just work very differently than the machines that are made nowadays. And, but of course, buying the more sustainable machinery is a bigger investment up front because um, the technology is more expensive and newer. So um, one way to adapt is using machines, and you can use machines that use less water. You can use machines that can inject the chemicals themselves, so then no workers are directly applying the chemicals. Um, there's also a lot of processes that were generally done by hand or manually with denim, and this would always create a lot of fiber dust, which then if the worker is breathing that in, that can be quite hazardous um, for their health. It's also just it extensive physical labor um, that is hard on a human body, especially after many years. Um, with the adaptation of using lasers, um, a lot of these processes have can now be done by machine. The machines still need operators to run them. So it's not like you're mm -hmm. eliminating a job by using a laser, but you are eliminating a lot of the harmful aspects that can be um, that a, a worker could be susceptible to if they were doing all the processes by hands. Um, and then also with, within the chemicals that are used, um, there's always the, there aren't really any sustainable chemicals, but um, chemicals are <laughs> chemicals, but there are a lot that are less harmful than the traditional um, chemicals. So um, potassium parmigant was always used as a spray um, to remove some of the color from the genes. But this is really harmful to breathe. It's really harmful if you would get on your skin. Um, mm. So lasers can also do this step of the process. But there are also other chemicals that have been developed that are less harmful to users, but also less harmful um, to the planet. And mm. so it's making these switches. But at this current time, the sustainable methods are always more expensive. Um, mm. So then it's not drastically more expensive, but it is more expensive than the traditional way. So then it's really getting the brands to understand, um, is this cost worth it? And my experience in the factory was a lot of times we would present a product that was sustainable and then the brand would ask, well, how much would it cost to make this in the traditional method? And then mm. depending on the brand and how they feel about cost and their profit margins and what they were willing to sacrifice and what they weren't, um, they would choose if they wanted the sustainable option or if they wanted the traditional option. Does it mean um, you can get the similar or same effect by traditional method and by the more sustainable way? Uh, the effect is the same or similar, but the cost is much more higher if you compare um, two pair of jeans. Not much more higher. Um, so, and it it can also depend on the different materials used and. And I think there are continued more and more advancements to where the cost divide is getting less. Um, okay. So maybe five years ago, it would have been drastically different. But now, um, because of all the innovations within the industry, it's not as drastically different as it was. 
Do you think it's also about scale, though? Like, because one of the things that you've mentioned when we've chatted before is that often you would work with customers who would have, let's say, a, be producing a line of gen- denim of jeans, and they'd want one sustainable style as part of a larger collection of sort of jeans that were produced in a more traditional way. A big part of the, a lot of the costs that you've just described are in the washing and the finishing of the jeans, but a big part of it also is the material cost, um, which which is sort of uh, one step further back, right? What kind of material are you going to use and how has that been produced? And material production um, and like the kind of washing steps that you just described, like the way to make them cheaper or one way to make them cheaper is to do them at scale, right? And to have high volumes. And so is it sort of like a chicken and egg situation where on the one hand, you have a lot of brands who want to have maybe like one sort of feature piece that's more sustainable and then the rest that are that are that are produced in the traditional way because they feel that that's all that they can afford. Whereas if maybe if they actually just made the jump and transition their whole collection, mm-hmm. then that would allow for a certain level of volume and scale that would actually bring the cost the cost down. Or I don't know, you said you think that more sustainable options are becoming cheaper. Do you think that's because it's becoming a more popular choice or or just because the machines and the equipment are, are, are becoming less expensive? Um, okay, where to start? Well, I think... Um... <laughs> First, there there were always brands that kind of wanted a sustainable market piece. I mean, sustainability has become quite quite marketable. So mm-hmm. there are the brands that really just make one pair of jeans and a collection of 20 jeans to say we have a sustainable product and we sell sustainable product, which that often is misleading to the consumer because they heard this brand talk about sustainability. So then they're like, oh, this must be a sustainable brand. They have one pair of sustainable jeans where everything else in their collection is made traditionally and not sustainably. Um, so there is that that market perspective where it is totally just a marketing tool. Um, mm. But inversely, there it is becoming much more common and it is becoming much more talked about. And in my experience with raw material suppliers, they're also really driving the innovation for, for sustainability. So, I mean, before you could, there was hardly any talk about um, organic cotton or recycled cotton or BCI cotton. And now every single fabric supplier you would go to would have those options. Um, But often the challenge with these materials, not every brand is using them and not many brands are using them uh, throughout their whole collection. So as you were saying about scaling, the minimum order requirements for these things are generally high. So if Mm. you would buy a fabric that had organic cotton, um, you would probably have to buy more than Mm -hmm. if you were just buying a regular cotton um, fabric. Mm. So, so it's like a it yeah, is a big yeah, commitment so the, from the brand. Yes, yes, it can definitely be a big commitment. Um, the nice thing about denim is it's because you buy one type of denim fabric doesn't mean you can make one type of jean um, because of the washing process. So if you were willing to use one fabric aqua- across your whole collection, um, there would be a lot more opportunity to create diverse products than with other fabrics and other product categories because denim is quite diverse. What do you think the barriers are to to doing that then? Um, Yeah, 
I think there's still quite a disconnect between the consumer to understand why these steps are important. And so Mm -hmm. I think the risk to a brand thinking that our customer won't understand why we want to use organic cotton and why then the jeans made with organic cotton are a slightly higher price. Um, Will the product sell? So there's still, I think the risk from the brand perspective is the the lack of consumer understanding to taking these steps. Um, It's interesting too, because it really begs the question, who has the role of educating the consumer? Because sometimes like um, a couple of months ago, Fashion Revolution's Transparency Index came out for the year. And one of the things that I thought was interesting that I read in that report was that Um, And the transparency index is like a tool where they evaluate basically not whether brands are doing things sustainably or not sustainably, but just how much information they're providing about what they're doing, whether it's sustainable or not. And and what I thought was really interesting is like one of the comments that that this report made was that – that they questioned, they put out the question, like, are brands intentionally, like, putting out confusing uh, information that makes it hard for consumers to really, like, connect the dots and putting out even just, like, an abundance of information that just Mm. thoroughly confuses and overwhelms consumers, actually, as a strategy for sort of, Mm -hmm. like, maintaining this... um, state of 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 confusion or lack of clarity about what sustainability does or doesn't require Mm -hmm. no i i completely agree with that and i don't think it's necessarily like a conscious action of brands generally um it's mainly because there really are no specific standards set on what you need to do to be considered sustainable so Mm. internally within the industry Um, from raw material suppliers, from manufacturers, there's starting to be a push towards governments um, to Mm -hmm. really, that there needs to be standards set and they need to be defined not only within the industry, so it's fair for the people who are doing things right, but also so it is easier to communicate to consumers and to educate. Um, Because there there isn't really an education. If you go to a, a shopping mall, maybe one brand would have a sign in the window that says, oh, this jeans use one cup of water to produce. But if you don't know anything about the production of jeans, is one cup of water good? Is it bad? Um, is that... <laughs> oh, how how wonderful it is. Yeah. 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 I mean, okay, that may, maybe it took one cup of water to wash those jeans, but what about all the water that was used to grow the cotton that is in the fabric of the jeans? And what about the dyeing of the fabric? So there is... It is misleading um, and there generally needs to be much more education. And um, yeah, I think it I think the role of education falls a little bit on everyone. So, yeah, it really I think it needs to be a balance um, between the brands, between the raw material suppliers, between the factories. Um, But it would be also great if there was some government intervention to set certain standards and. methodology for how sustainability is defined and how consumers can be educated about it and what specifically can be used in marketing around that. Um, So there isn't a lot of misleading information anymore. Uh, But also I think it's uh, as consumers, uh, you're responsible for where your money goes. So it is important (laughs) to know where you're putting your money. Supporting which side or supporting what kind of products, right? Yes, Uh, exactly. 
Makila, I feel quite interested into one question because you said just now, you said、uh, nowadays more and more、uh, raw material suppliers or manufacturing facilities are pushing the government to have a more clear standard or more clear. Um, regulations, let's say, or definitions about what sustainability it is. Then I, I was just thinking, let's say if a denim factory is equipped with more sustainable methods and already invested into lots of new machineries, can this factory gain more orders from brands? Or in another word, can this factory be actually more、uh, competitive in the market to get more orders? Um, definitely, I think、um, there are. Well, again, it goes both ways. There are.、Um, not every factory has the sustainable equipment and machinery. So again, that is a more expensive initial investment for the factory.、Um, they need to pay upfront to get these expensive machineries, and、yeah. there aren't factories that have them.、Um, so. That does position them to to be able to offer these machineries and the services that come with them,、um, especially as sustainability is driven. I think it will get to a point if factories aren't making these investments and aren't making these changes, they won't be able to operate. And that's the inverse of government intervention.、Um, this is, of course, all being pushed by factories who are making these、um, investments and are driving this change. Um, the factories that are just kind of scraping by and doing things the way they've always been done, they won't survive something like this, because、um, it also will put more pressure on brands to operate in better ways. So、um, it is a bit of a dilemma there. Do you think that,、um, like, it was one of the to to, to follow up on Jesse's question, like the. Thing that's been floating around in the back of my head as I've heard you describing this is like, why are suppliers pursuing, like, pursuing more sustainable options? Because on the one hand, we hear okay, there's some market demand for it, but not that much. So is it like what you just described, which is that people are looking for ways to sort of improve their value proposition?、Um, and trying to keep up with where the direction that they think the industry is going. Or one of the things that, like, I've often wondered about, and I think you and Jesse could probably speak to this a lot better than I can. But I think my suspicion, and I have my hunch, and I have no idea if it's true or not, is that also these raw material suppliers, these cut and sew facilities, are living with the environmental impacts of their work. Every day, like they see the consequences in their faces, it's affecting their communities, right? And I can speculate or imagine that that would be also a pretty strong motivator, just to, to try and figure out how to do things differently. I mean, it's their food chains that are getting,、mm-hmm. that are that are you know getting contaminated. It's、uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. So they experience firsthand the implications of the sacrifices. That the garment industry has made for the planet、um, mm. for from the past decades, and they firsthand experience、um, the depletion of resources, the negative impacts of using things like harmful chemicals or overusing water, or I mean, 
Uh, I think it's even throughout COVID with factories shut down in industrial areas in India and China, where the air pollution has been the best it's been in decades. Um, it's hard to deny that this is hurting the planet. And I think um, it is bold of these raw material suppliers to push these innovations and to push these developments for more sustainable products and alternative resources than the ones that we've always been using because it's, um, it's a risk. They're taking a big risk with their resources and their time to create these products and just hoping that the rest of the industry will catch on and actually buy them. Um, but especially with water, especially with petroleum-based um, materials, polyester, it's just it has to be stopped or there's really going to be significant irreversible damage to the planet more than there's already been. Um. It's, uh, it's a quite uh, interesting question that uh, if someone is doing manufacturing denim and uh, saying, oh, this damages to the environment every day, why would they still continue doing so? Uh, well, I come from China, so I can just speak about from Chinese experiences from what I saw in China. I, I think, of course, there are factors of people are greedy. They have a very strong desire of money driven by insecurity. They feel insecure and they feel money is the solution for all these problems. And also driven by some uh, blend support, for instance, um, it's hard to declare the ownership of environment. You have a river flowing in front of the door. Who owns the river? Okay, the river has been seen represented by the state, right? If the state department is strong and there's no corruption, of course, things will be much easier because the state can simply ask the factory, use less water or manage better the waste. But if the uh, department is not very clean, not uh, very efficient, let's say, then it's another story. So this is one problem, uh, the ownership of uh, environment. And then another thing I think is uh, if people feel they have no choices, then very simply they will go to whatever can make them to gain what they want. For instance, mm -hmm. in garment factories, in garment business, uh, if they feel they have no choices but just to uh, pour that waste into water or into river or whatever to get that orders to keep the factory run, they will simply do that. And when the environment solution, environment regulations becomes more and more strict, they will go to another country and other places to to manufacture. So that's why you can see manufacturing is moving between countries from Bangladesh, from China, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, to African countries, to other countries with less regulations and less, um, less environmental cost to consider. So I think it's really a lot of factors uh, get involved. If we just look at factory management, it's a mm. bit uh, too narrow, let's say. You know, there are lots of factors, I think. And China's an interesting case, too, because as you just described, like, I mean, the government has taken a big role in trying to sort of 
at least my understanding is the government's taken a really active role in recent years to try and promote stronger environmental policy and legislation. And at the same time, you have rising minimum wages. And these kind of factors come together then for chi- the Chinese manufacturing uh, sectors kind of struggling and, and looking for, as you said, Jesse, looking for options abroad, whether that's going to Cambodia or other places in Southeast Asia or Ethiopia. Or Africa. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of the reason is really because they felt uh, okay, no choices. Everything, uh, all the costs increase now. Even even all these costs are reasonable. They don't deny mm. those costs are not reasonable. They accept it's reasonable. We should consider all these costs. However, if they feel they have no choices but to move to another places to keep the business running then they will move to another places and it's very sad mm. because in this case you, you you understand why people say fashion business is a dirty business it's always looking for somewhere cheaper somewhere less strict has less strict uh, regulations you know mm. yeah and that's an interesting i think way to frame it because a lot of times when we talk about the race to the bottom in the fashion industry we're talking about labor but actually we could also use this expression to to describe sort of what's happening on the environmental side as well. Um, Michaela, so tell us a little bit about what you did, um, what you did next. Um, so after that, I wanted to use my experience and work directly for a brand. And so mm-hmm. I was working for a high street European brand and just generally um, trying to apply what I learned um in the factory and um, how I could better support the brand. Um, Shortly after that, I moved to a buying house, which was um, an organization representing different brands all over the world who didn't necessarily have offices in production countries. So you would kind of be the middleman between these brands and their uh, garment manufacturers. Um, So that role was a lot similar to the role I did in the factory. Um, But at the end of the day, I still felt like um, much of what I was doing wasn't contributing to what I really felt what the industry needed in terms of sustainability and in terms of ethical practices. And um, so that really led me to question uh, who's doing it differently. Is anyone doing differently? What, What is out there that is different than this? norm that has been established and how can it um yeah what can we do Mm. to make it different um and that's when uh I transitioned to my role at Outland um which is a organization that has their it's a denim brand but also a manufacturer so you had the freedom there to be involved in all processes, which I hadn't experienced before, um, where you're directly linking to a brand, but a brand that has a manufacturing facility. So you have um, so much control over the products that you're producing, but also how they're produced. Mm. I just want to backtrack a little bit to your time when you were, uh, after you left the factory, when you were working for either for a brand or then afterwards for a um, uh, I want to call it a sourcing office, but you called it something else. You called it a... Oh, I called it a buying house, but... A buying house, yeah. Okay. Um, 
Can you just and you said like you that you you know you 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 felt you continued to feel like you weren't having the impact that you wanted to have. Can you share a little bit about why that was? Mm-hmm. I think um, the biggest thing I struggled with was the the kind of the Trump was always the price or the profit margin for the brands. So mm. it was still often the mindset was, nope, we have a set profit margin. We have to achieve that, whatever it takes. And it wasn't, I didn't feel that the suppliers were being considered fairly. I didn't feel like the raw material choices were being considered fairly or the processes that were being used were being considered fairly. Um, it mm. was all for profit at the end of the day. And that was just something I didn't want to be a part of anymore. Were there some companies or brands that you worked with that were better than others? And if so, or who who were sort of more willing to be flexible on price issues? And if so, like, why do you think that was? The, there were some, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the ones who did value their suppliers a little bit more. Um, they saw mm-hmm. them as more of than a supplier, but rather a partner. Um, in their mm. business, but that still wasn't the norm. It was still mostly you're our supplier, you work for us, you do what we say kind of mentality. So for the for the companies or the brands who did see their suppliers as partners, I'm just curious, like what are the ingredients that we could sort of like extract from that and say, well, this is something they had, in, or maybe there isn't. I don't know. Maybe it is just about leadership and 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 company values. I. I yeah. Just curious. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it's quite hard to speak yeah. directly for the brands, but I think from my perspective, um, yeah, it is leadership that just wants equality is a huge uh, factor to that, um, that, you know, and just to appreciate humans and to treat humans as humans. Like it's the clothing industry is a human industry. Your clothes are made by humans. Your clothes are packed by humans. Your clothes are shipped by humans. So if right. you don't want to accept that as a factor and you value your profit over that, um, yeah, I don't think you'll ever have good relationships internally or externally. But um, but which really connects, I think, back to the consumer. And when I want to circle back to some of the things we were discussing earlier about transparency, right, and the role of the consumer in this, and that on the one hand, the consumer has a lot of power because they're deciding which brands they are going to support and where they're going to spend their money. On the other hand, they're often in a really tricky position because how are they supposed to know? I mean, like, you know, both you and Jesse have pointed – you know, numerous times throughout this conversation and Jesse also in other conversations about how, the importance of leadership and management style, et cetera, et cetera. How mm-hmm. is a consumer supposed to know about that? And yeah. it makes me think like my point of view on the transparency index, which is maybe, or, or not just the transparency index, but conversations about transparency within sort of sustainable fashion more generally, which is maybe a little bit controversial, but it's like, you know, we, the the brand is the gatekeeper to the fashion supply chain from the consumer perspective. The consumer can't access the, the, the further down the supply chain without the brand sort of allowing it. 
consumers are looking for ways to sort of hold brands accountable to what they're saying. But our solution within sustainability spaces is to like ask brands directly or themselves to fill that blank for consumers. Mm. And I kind of wonder if a more effective strategy would be to push brands to actually open those gates to give their supply chain a role to speak directly to the Mm -hmm. public somehow. And the only people who really have insight into whether brands are doing what they say they're doing is their partners further down the supply Mm -hmm. chain. Those are the only people with access to the information who are really qualified to say, yes, they are, or no, they're not. And so... um, And so like, I kind of think like, what if the transparency index, instead of looking at all these policies and governance policies and things like that, that, you know, a brand might have, what if they evaluated like what a brand does to give consumers and to give their customers access to the people who could actually Mm -hmm. hold them accountable, which Mm -hmm. I know is maybe a bit radical and and controversial, but. (laughs) No, I, I don't think it's radical. Uh, um, and mm. I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think that is a telling sign. If you go to a brand's website and they don't say anything about their suppliers, they don't say where they even buy their garments from or where mm. their garments are made. Or, I mean, I think it's, I think it should be an expectation that you should list the factories that you work with on your website. Um, brands, there are brands doing this, but there are a lot that aren't. If you go to a brand's website and there's nothing about the history of where the clothes came from, I always see that as a red flag because, Mm. um, their suppliers don't exist then in reality to the general market, their suppliers are behind the scenes. No one can go to that supplier and say, Hey, are you being treated fairly? Hey, how does this brand treat you? Um, Mm. so I, I agree with that a hundred percent. Right. And the transparency index as it exists today does do that, right? They evaluate brands on whether or not they make their supply, you know, their supplier list public. But just because a supplier list is public doesn't mean that a supplier is going to want to talk about it because these power relationships are so asymmetrical and there's so much fear of retribution and of punishment. So like maybe the next step is then to evaluate what do what kind of measures do brands take to not, number one, okay, disclose who their suppliers are, but number two, encourage them and support them to come forward with this information. Oh, just this thinking, it's very funny. Remember we discussed it before. We said uh, um, when a brand asks uh, the suppliers to um, to open up the production line, which makes uh, which puts suppliers on a weaker positions because they have a risk they might lose the orders if they don't answer that requirement from the brands. You know, if they don't share those cost saving techniques or don't share all this. But here, what you open up the production line, you mean just invite the brand in to see what's happening or? It's more like uh, sharing the cost saving techniques or sharing Mm -hmm. where they found the raw materials, sharing all this uh, little information. So. That this requirement put suppliers on a weaker position when they facing the requirements from the brands. And what you suggest just now is putting the brands on a weaker position, or let's say not a weaker position, put them back to a more fair position when they mm. face the public. Because now they have to open up their supply chain, let's say, to talk about the stories on the other side, where they outsource the production, um, mm. who they are where they are, how they make the products. So I I think it's a very good idea to put 
this uh, under a spotlight. If they mm. have to talk about um, mm. where they produced, you know, how it produced, it puts back the responsibility to the shooters of the brands. It's no more responsibility of suppliers. You cannot say because that factory or those factories don't respect uh, workers' rights because they don't respect the environment. So we have products like that. Cannot say that anymore because they mm. now now it's brands answering those questions. So I think uh, it's a very good idea. Yeah, I don't know. It would just be so cool if like the transparency initiatives were like okay have you published your supplier list yes or no and then okay if you've published your supplier list what have you done to actually make people feel make your suppliers feel comfortable coming forward with Mm. this information um but actually they don't have to open their supplier list because by doing so as if as if to to put uh, to push the suppliers to the to the front stage for them to to receive the public inquiries you know it could mm. be just simply like ask brands can you tell us about your suppliers where they are how they produce your products do you know i think that is uh, or how do they how do they evaluate how do like better buying has a program where suppliers are evaluating brands, right? So what do they yeah. what do they have to say? Have you have you encouraged your suppliers to give feedback and what have you done with that feedback? Yeah, do we have uh, access to know how your suppliers think about you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I I think a lot of times and maybe this I'm oversensitive to this issue, but a lot of times when we talk about transparency, I feel like we say, oh, we should pu- we should we should publish the supplier list so that we know where clothes are being made. But there's sort of like this underlying assumption, like if we know where clothes are being made, then we can go to those factories and we can like catch them, you know, or we can mm. we can trap them or whatever. And actually, like for me, I don't. That's not what that's about. Whether knowing where knowing who you know who the suppliers are is about gaining access to the information which is required to be able to hold brands accountable to you know are they doing what they say they're doing in the way that they can communicate with consumers but yeah it's still shifting the attention to the supplier side actually the attention should be on the brand side because they are the one placing orders i mean when a business Mm -hmm. has a risk of losing orders they i'm not sure suppliers want to be on the front stage to Mm. This circumstance. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think it still is. Then the suppliers feel the pressure. The brands don't feel the pressure because the suppliers think, "Oh no, what if, what if we make a mistake and that comes out? Then we're we're finished as a supplier. We right. have this bad mark against us." But the brand still goes on regardless of who was yeah. actually at fault. So many factors putting suppliers yeah. under spotlights sometimes just uh, don't help the whole situation, but just to make suppliers feel much more stressed and uh, insecure, I think. Yeah. Okay. So I want to just talk a little bit more generally about how your experience, um, because you've had so many different positions within the fashion supply chain, and how your path has sort of shaped your convictions about sustainability and what it requires, and also the role and the responsibility of the designer. What should we be teaching fashion design students? Yeah, I definitely think... um... I mean, design has always been this glamorous, creative, um, thought about role in an industry. And it, it, it definitely can be, but I do think there is an immense amount of responsibility because as a designer, you're often 
selecting the raw materials that the brand is then going to use for production. And if we want to talk about sustainability, raw materials play a huge factor in that. So I think it is, um, especially in this day and age, the responsibility of a designer to be informed about the materials you're using. And a lot of brands that you're going to work for won't provide that information. You need to get it yourself um, with mm. There are, um, honestly, throughout the COVID crisis, there have been so many webinars, um, whether they're led by raw material suppliers or organizations that are trying to create standards for the industry. But um, um, but I think mm-hmm. it's something as a designer you have to be continually doing right now because as the industry advances and as there are more and more innovations made, there's going to be more information that comes with that. Um, And if you aren't informed about the materials you're using, you can't know if you're making good choices or bad choices. Um, Mm. If you don't understand the implications of a material um, and how it breaks down or how it's reused, can it be recycled? Can it just end up in a landfill? Can um, what is used to make this material and where does that come from and how does that work? I think... um, the role of design is becoming so important in um, coordination with sustainability. And if design or if sustainability isn't thought about when designs are thought about, um, it's much harder to change materials in the process. Uh, So as a designer, when you're developing something, when you are creating something new, you have to think about the materials that you're going to use. Uh, So I think this is so um, important for, for, um, sustainability. Mm. And I know when I went to school that it wasn't as big of an issue. So of course we learned about raw materials, but the very basic ones, the ones that everyone was using, we didn't learn about the new things or the alternatives or, or even should we, that we should question the materials that we are using. Um, and I think Mm. that's also important why, um, establishing relationships with your suppliers are so important because, um, they're always working on newness. They're always working on innovations. And if you have a good relationship with them, they'll share that with you. And they'll, you know, in turn, they educate you um, on what they can do. And then you can in turn take that and and put it into the industry and the brands that you're working for um, to just overall create a movement that just creates change within the industry. It'd be so cool if like if all fashion design students like it was a mandatory module was to go and spend a term working with a manufacturer, whether within you oh, know the I United States or so. Europe or abroad, whatever. <laughs> I've been surprised as a garment factory manager, like on the receiving it. And I'm not from a design background at all, but have had a lot of exposure to it just because of my job. And I've been surprised on the brand side, people, my counterpoints or people that I'm talking to on the brand side, actually just how little understanding they have of how their products are made. Yeah. And even, I mean, a lot of um, my friends, people I went to school with, they worked for brands. Uh, they've worked in big cities they've worked in big offices for years, but they've never been to a garment factory. And yeah. it almost blows my mind how, how that works. Um, I mean, I yeah. get their frustrations on both sides, but I think it would really help change the industry if everyone could really see the realities of it. When I was at the Sustainable Apparel Coalition meeting last 
June, I guess, I was talking to some people who worked for for brands and I was and who were designers and who were really interested in my perspective and point of view. And I was like, come, come spend two Mm -hmm. months at my factory. Like you can just see, you know, to take your time, study, figure out how these things work, please. And they weren't even our customers. They were just and Mm -hmm. and I but, you know, of course, nobody took me up on the offer. But (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's hard because there is always work to be done. So Mm. that is, I think, a lot of times the, the work is prioritized over education um mm. uh, so it, it just has to be a balance i think and makila if you still work in the uh, um, bangladesh delim factory today what would you suggest the factory to do to practice sustainability it's it's a hard question because like you were saying there often is so much intimidation from brands on factories and suppliers they're hesitant mm. to ask questions or they're hesitant to offer different suggestions or solutions because they're afraid of losing the order or losing business. Um, But I think, I mean, we have to empower these suppliers. They're the ones that are making the investments and they are the ones that are making changes. So I think they just need to be empowered and encouraged and believe that uh, the work that they're doing will pay off. And it's okay to say, we're doing this and this is good and this is better for the industry. It's okay to, to be strong and to be proud of the work that they're doing to better sustainability, to better themselves and ultimately even to better their countries and their lives. Yeah. I think like for me, um, uh, you have to look both sides on the one hand, what can the supplier do, but also what can the brands do? Because we've talked a lot about the sort of asymmetrical power relationships between brands and suppliers. And it reminds me of like, it's not at all the same, of course, as say like the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. It's a totally different context, totally different conversation. But the parallel that I draw between the two of them is like one of the things that's really come out of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States is that um, we have to sort of recognize these asymmetries in power relationships and we can't be asking the wounded to do the work to fix the system that they didn't create. And that is, I think, like one of the, that I think lesson applies here too. And if, you know, if we have, if we recognize as an industry that these power relationships are very asymmetrical then the responsibility for dismantling that sits with those who have that power. And the responsibility for rebuilding, of course, then needs to be uh, collaborative. But as soon as I think those with power sort of take steps to start dismantling a certain system and give other people a seat at the table, people will take that seat at the table, you know? Mm. And, um, and, um, and 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 that's like one of the things that always like it's a question I get a lot I, is, oh, well, you're a garment factory manager. What can garment factory managers do to, you know, be more sustainable to make their factories more sustainable? And I'm like, OK, yes, important question, but also kind of just like misses the context a bit because it's like, yeah, there are certain things that we can do, but like I'm operating within an ecosystem where I have very limited space for maneuvering or for changing the way that things are done, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
It was such an interesting conversation. And Michaela, I'm so glad that we connected, that you reached out to us and that we had a chance to, yeah, to learn from your experiences. I learned so much. Yeah, thanks. It was, yeah, great talking to you guys. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, check out our website, manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. Leave comments on Instagram or connect with us privately through our website. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show, and we'd love your help with that. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Mm-hmm.